So just as uh, Luke mentioned, we did with this song, which may be familiar, and sometimes when you sung the same song over and over again, heard it over and over again, you, you stop thinking about what it means. We're, we're doing that same process of translation with stories from the New Testament about the birth of Jesus over the Advent season, trying to take these familiar stories and uh, recapture their significance for us. Some of us are people who have said yes to Jesus. We're followers of his. We've heard these stories again and again and again. They're so familiar that we can just take them for granted. We want to reawaken our love for Christ, our trust in him. Some of us are, uh, are thinking, you know, I, I'm not in that category. I haven't said yes to Jesus. I'm, I don't intend to. I'm, I'm not a Christian. I don't really want to be. These stories are relevant for those people, but not for me. Well, let's take another look. There's something here for all of us. We're going to read today a story about Joseph. Joseph, who was, the text will tell us, betrothed to Mary, so legally married, legally husband and wife, but not yet living in the same home, going through about a one-year period of betrothal, something more meaningful than engagement, uh, but not yet full married life among a couple sharing the same home. Joseph learns that Mary's going to have a baby. He knows he is not the father. He's confused. He gets a message from God, delivered by an angel. And the message from God says, here's the name you're to give this baby when he is born. And here's why that name matters to all of us. Jim? Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a minute and pray for some help as we listen. Lord, we need help. 
We need help to hear well and to hear you speaking to us through the scriptures. We need help to hear what Jesus himself wants us to know by the power of his Holy Spirit. Would you give us that help? Um, Help us to focus our hearts on you. As Steve mentioned earlier, all of life is worship. And so we worship you now by by longing to listen well. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It began like most 911 calls might. Uh, Police, where is the emergency? Right? If you're dialing 911, somebody needs to be rescued, something's gone wrong, there's an emergency. First thing we want to know is where? Right? Want you to know that you've, you've, you've got the right people, police. Now, where is the emergency? Uh, all of this is being said with an accent that I won't try. Kiwi accent, New Zealand. Um, police lady? I got some toys for you. A four-year-old boy had dialed 911 in New Zealand. And he really wanted the police department to know that he had some interesting toys at home. And, uh, of course, eventually the, the, the father realizes what's going on. Mom is sick and in bed, and that's why the little boy is not being supervised very closely. And... Um, so it's this real, you know, cute story. There's no real danger. Nobody really needs to be rescued. Mom has just got a cold in the bed, and she's going to be okay. And, and the toys, there's not really a problem with them. Nobody's, nobody's going to get hurt. We don't really need to call 911. Um, it's a cute story, right? But it's not a story about real danger or real rescue. And it would be tempting maybe to dismiss the story of Jesus' birth in the same way. It's a story that talks about the very real need for real rescue. So the the, the angel comes to Joseph and says, name him this for this reason. Name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Save. Another way to translate that word is rescue. Something terrible has happened. There is a real emergency. There is a disaster. There is a need for rescue, and Jesus has come to meet it. It's kind of tempting to read this as, well, that's one of those cutesy stories. But there's not a real need for rescue. Or is it? Well, let's explore a couple questions. Here's the first one. Is this a real emergency? That is, do these kinds of things happen in the world where you and I live? Um, We won't get very far with Jesus and the fact that he's come to save people from their sins if we're still stuck on, wait a minute, is there any such thing as the supernatural? Are there angels? 
Is there a way for nature to be superseded so that a virgin can conceive a child without a human father being involved? Is it really possible for there to be someone on this planet who is born as a real human being and yet is God with us? This simple story is just shot through with the supernatural, and there are some of us who are thinking, can I really believe in the supernatural and things like this if I take reason and science seriously? Now, you want a longer answer to that? My friend Jack Collins, uh, it's probably uh, C. John Collins, would be the title if you look it up through Amazon, has written a book called Science and Faith, Friends or Foes, and uh, great, great book. Uh, by the only person I know who has a Ph.D. in Hebrew and a degree from MIT. Um, so some of us have left brain and some of us have right brain, and he just got brain. Um, so here's the, but without trying to duplicate uh, all of Jack's work in that book, let's just start here. When we ask the question, can I believe in the supernatural? Um, if I take reason and science seriously, we're making an assumption, and it's a wise, healthy, good assumption. And the assumption is this. It is better to believe things that are true than to believe things that are false. And if I know something is false, I don't want to believe in it. And if something is true, I should believe it. It's preferable to believe the true, not the false. It is better to do one than the other. That's the assumption we're making when we ask this question about, is the supernatural real? It's a wise assumption. But let's notice something. If there is nothing supernatural in this world, then there is no basis for making that assumption. Right? Any Calvin and Hobbes fans in the room, right? Oh, yes. I am seeing not only a hand, but lots of enthusiasm, right? There, there, there are big Calvin and Hobbes fans in the room. You, you know the game called Calvin Ball then, if, if you're familiar with uh, Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. And, and the Calvin Ball episodes, you know, are always so fun because there are no rules. They're constantly changing. Whatever the game was in the first panel of the strip, it changes every panel. And uh, so sometimes it's Calvin shouting out, you know, you just got frozen by an alien space ray, minus three goals. And, and sometimes it's Hobbes shouting out in his tiger voice. I don't really know what Hobbes' tiger voice should sound like. But, you know, he's, he's shouting out, no, 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 I just got freed and released. That's bonus 7,000 for me. And, um, you know, tag, I got to the base first. Oh, but the rule flip, getting to the base is actually not the goal anymore. You lose. And they're constantly changing the rules as it shouldn't work that way, right? Um, you can't make the rules while you're playing the game. In order to evaluate a system, you have to be outside the system. That's why we have referees, right? It's, it's hard to play the game fairly, and evaluate the game at the same time. 
And so when we ask questions about the natural and the supernatural, we have to do that. If I say it is better to believe what is true than what is false, I have to stand outside the system in order to be able to say that, right? I can't stand within nature and evaluate what is good and bad in nature. I can observe it and experience it from the inside, but I can't evaluate the system from inside the system. So the moment I start to say this thing within nature, believing what is true, is better than that thing within nature, believing what is false, I have assumed a conclusion that that can't be reached from within the system. There's got to be something beyond nature to satisfy that natural human assumption that, hey, it is better to believe what's true than what's false. And the moment we start thinking in categories of better, we have assumed we're standing on a solid rock that's outside the system of nature. I'm not faulting that assumption. I'm saying it's actually wise. It's good. It's proper. But you can't stand inside the system of nature and say the supernatural doesn't exist if you're also going to say it's better to believe in what is true than what is false. The moment you start evaluating what is better, what's good, what's bad, what's true, what's false, you, you have already acknowledged that there is something outside of nature that helped you to make that evaluation. Otherwise, we just have a lot of opinions or maybe a lot of brain chemistry firing and misleading us into thinking that some things are better and some things are worse, right? So this is a healthy assumption. But in order for us to even believe that it's better to embrace the true than the false, there has to be something outside of nature that helped us to reach that conclusion. So, my question for you is not whether you believe in the supernatural. My question for you is, does the supernature that you believe in match the supernature that actually exists? Right? That's question number one. Question number two is, what are the reliable sources for learning about this stuff outside of the system of nature, the supernatural? And... Is the God of the Bible the source of not only the natural but the supernatural? Right? Those are the right kinds of questions to be asking. Let's take a look at a man like Joseph, according to Matthew's gospel. He believes in nature. Verse 19. Her husband Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly because he believed in nature. He lives in a world where women don't normally have babies without the involvement of a man. He lives in a world where he knows it's not him, and so it must be someone else, and so she has broken their marriage commitment. He believes in nature. That's why he's thinking this way. But he also believes in supernature, right? And so an angel appears to him in a dream, 
and tells him some things. And then verse 24 says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So here's a man who believes in the natural and he believes in the supernatural. And he believes that God makes known to us the supernatural in ways that are trustworthy. In his case, that's an angel appearing in a dream. Uh, in, in the case of the readers of Matthew's gospel, it's, it's, it's the biblical record of this event, of the angel's testimony to Joseph, and, and then, of course, the ultimate way that God makes the supernatural known to us is by stepping into nature as a human baby and being, verse 23 says, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another, another acknowledgement of the natural and the supernatural working together. Naturally, people who haven't learned Hebrew don't know what Hebrew means. So we have to translate it and tell you Emmanuel means something incredibly supernatural. God with us. Jesus is like that. Jesus believed in both nature and supernature, and he believed that the Old Testament scriptures fulfilled in him and his teaching and his life and his work are a reliable source through which God makes the supernatural known to us. Listen to just a couple snippets of Jesus teaching. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Human beings need to eat. We need to eat food. Jesus believed in nature. He doesn't say, man does not live by bread, stop eating. He says, bread alone is not enough. Believes in nature, eat food. But he believes in the supernatural too. Listen to every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then you see something similar when, when Jesus talks about um, birds and flowers as he's teaching. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. So look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Jesus doesn't believe in Disney birds that sew dresses for princesses to go to balls, right? He believes in real birds, natural birds, part of nature, not little farmer birds that wear cute farmer hats and drive little bird tractors, right? He's like, they're not like that. They don't sow and reap. They aren't farmers. They eat stuff that grows in the natural world. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So the natural world and the supernatural world are woven together in this mysterious way. And God speaks to us so that we can know truth about the supernatural in reliable ways. We have to start there. Right? It, it won't mean much to me or to you if we hear the promise that Jesus can save his people from their sins and we dismiss it because, oh, well, that assumes some supernatural dimension that just isn't real. It doesn't exist. So we start by saying, Every human being believes in the supernatural. Because every human believe, being believes that some things are better than others. And the only way to consistently reach that conclusion is to assume that there's something outside the system of nature that lets you evaluate nature. 
And that brings us back to this question of, well, if this is a real emergency, like this is not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not a fable, it's not a game we play with words because we're Christians, it's not a pretend we do for a few weeks because it's Christmas. There's something real going on here. God really did take on human flesh. God with us is a reality. The supernatural has stepped into nature in the birth of Jesus. Well, what's the nature of the emergency and what, what can we hope for in terms of rescue? The angel says, verse 21, Joseph, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, um, what, is, what does all that mean? We, we could dismiss it all and say, well, you know, that word sin is really just a label for fun things that religious prudes like to uh, make rules about to keep the rest of us from having fun. There's a coffee shop and bakery in New England called Sin. The way you get to their website is www.eatwicked.com. Right? And their logo's got this little kind of devil tail coming out of it. And, um, you know, promises you the ability to sin guilt-free and they wind up getting some interesting product reviews like one of the reviews says I can't stop saying enough great things about sin <laughs> um, so you know kind of taking that laughing like New England the, the Puritans made all these rules about fun stuff and called it all sin and it's, it's hard to take it seriously But there's something real going on here according to what the scriptures are saying to us. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Save. There's been a disaster. There are people who need to be rescued. Save. He will save. We can't rescue ourselves. Nature won't solve this problem. Human resources won't solve the problem. And so name him Jesus as a reminder of that. Now, to you and me, the word Jesus doesn't sound anything like the word rescue or the word save because we speak English. But, but if, if you are in Joseph's shoes, good first century Jewish person, you speak Aramaic most of the time in the home, but you know, you know your Hebrew as well from the synagogue. You know that the, the Greek name, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew name, Yeshua, which is related to the Hebrew verb, Yasa, save. Yeshua is, is short for the Hebrew phrase, the Lord is salvation. The Lord is He will save. You can't save yourselves. Whatever the disaster is, you, you can't 
save yourself. Uh, it's not just Christians who have understood the name Jesus or Yeshua in that way. We have evidence from a, a Jewish writer named Philo who lived around the same time the New Testament was being written, a Jewish philosopher. And, and he says that Jewish people believe that the name Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. He doesn't connect that at all with Jesus. But, but this isn't just a Christian understanding of what the name Jesus means. This is an understanding that was common in the Jewish world in the first century, that the Lord is salvation, and the angel is saying to Joseph, yeah, and now we're going to give a name to a baby because the Lord is coming to rescue his people from their sins. Okay, what does that mean? All too often, uh, Christian people have shrunk this word down and looked at it as kind of one-dimensional. But a, a biblical understanding of sin has multiple dimensions. One of them is we need forgiveness. We need to be rescued from condemnation. We, we need to not be found in the wrong when we are evaluated by supernatural standards of right and wrong. There is someone who sits outside the system of nature who evaluates what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And, and, and when that someone, God, evaluates us, we do not want to be found in the wrong. If we are, we experience condemnation, guilt before him. Whether we feel guilty or not is not the question here. It's whether we are found to be guilty by the God who has a perspective outside our own. Does Jesus believe in this sort of thing? Well, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we echo these words. I'll stick within Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, verse 28. As Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, Here's a cup. Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You and I are guilty of doing evil things. And we need to be forgiven. And we cannot do anything to forgive ourselves. We cannot do anything to earn forgiveness. We need someone outside the system of human wickedness and evil to rescue us. That's one dimension of sin. Forgiveness, freedom from condemnation, freedom from guilt and shame. Sometimes we use the fancy theological term justification. That's what we're talking about. But there's another dimension to, to being a sinner, and it is I, I am a weak person. I am so weak that evil is appealing to me. There are times when 
It, it seems to me good to do something wrong. There are times when it seems to me better to do something unkind and unloving toward you than to do something loving. There are times when it seems to me better appealing to lie rather than tell the truth. There is something wrong with me. I am weak. You can forgive me and take away all the guilt and shame, but, but now we've got to address the next dimension of sin, this weakness. How do I become a person for whom wrong things aren't appealing anymore? How do I become the kind of person who would find no joy or satisfaction in saying untrue things, even if they make me look good? <laughs> How would I become that kind of... We're talking about the reality of temptation. And Jesus speaks about that as well. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. He's just been talking about the, the, the problem of anger and how it's appealing to us to hate other people rather than to love them. And now he talks about the reality of adultery and lust. And Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, does Jesus literally mean this? Look, I was teaching a class one time and I read this verse in class and a guy on the front row went and he pulled his eye out. It was a glass eye. This is the first day of class. I'd never met this guy in my life. I got no idea he's got a glass eye. I'm not real good with eye things to begin with. Like, the worst thing in the world for me is when a doctor says, you got to put these eye drops in your eye. Or, you know, can, what, you, why, you ever thought about wearing contacts? No. Touching eyeballs is gross. And here's this guy going, and then he pops it back in, and nobody else in the room saw it, and I'm just like. <laughs> okay, Jesus wasn't talking about that. <laughs> right? What's he saying? He's saying human beings are so fundamentally weak that, that, that somebody else isn't making you do wrong things. It's coming from within you. <laughs> If your hand causes you to, if your eye is causing you to sin, you, you can try so hard to resist temptation, but, but you can't do it because it's deep down inside of you. You need some radical surgery. You need rescue. And getting rid of this or that body part won't solve the problem. We all know that, right? There's no part of me that has cornered the market on hatred. I wish... I could say, yeah. oh, that hate gene is right here. It's gone. I will love people perfectly from now on. No, we need to be rescued. This is good news. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And that means to redeem us so that, so that we are not the kind of people for whom evil things are tempting anymore. Now, we, we give that the fancy name of sanctification, growing in spiritual maturity, becoming a new kind of person 
So there's freedom to grow and to change, and I don't remain the same sort of person that I was a year ago or five or ten years ago because Jesus is real, and he has come to save his people from their sins. There's one more dimension we sang about earlier. We sang about this, this hope, this promise in the Scripture. Well, we weren't singing where we were reading. It shows what I remember. It's right here on the front page of our worship guide. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, God with us. You shall never again fear evil. It doesn't say you need to be forgiven. That's true. That's not what this promise from Scripture is addressing. It doesn't say you're the kind of weak person who gives in to temptation and we've got to grow you and change you. That's true, but it's not what this part of Scripture is talking about. It is saying not only do I need to be rescued from condemnation by forgiveness, I not only do I need to be rescued from my weakness and corruption by spiritual growth and maturity and change, the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to be rescued from suffering and from a world in which evil is a thing. I need to be rescued from tears and sorrow and frustration and misery and life in a world where everything seems to go wrong all of the time. I need to be rescued from that. Has Jesus come to rescue us from that? Well, what does he say about it? Matthew chapter 9 describes a man who's been brought to the house where Jesus is teaching by four of his friends. The house is so crowded, nobody can get in. They climb up to the roof, not unusual in the first century. Have a roof you could get to, access. The next part's unusual dig a hole through the roof and lower the man down. And Jesus says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So yeah, Jesus came to save us from our sins in the sense of we need forgiveness. We need freedom from condemnation. And we need freedom from corruption that that makes us weak and, and unable to resist temptation. But we also need to be healed when our bodies are broken. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, buddy, I can forgive your sins. That's the good news. But take him back up because I don't care about his body. I'm only here to save souls. Jesus doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, hey, man, good news. I can forgive your sins, but I'm too weak to do anything about your body. He says, there's a connection between the brokenness of the human heart that causes you to love evil things and makes you guilty before God and you need it for his forgiveness and life in a world where things go wrong, where death is a reality, where paralysis is a reality, where the reality is in the first century, if you're paralyzed, you you will be poor. Poverty is a reality in this world. And Jesus says, I've come to do something about all of it. I have come to save my people from their sins. 
But what if I'm not one of his people? What kind of message do you think a four-year-old gets from the police when he dials 911 to talk about his toys? (laughs) We're not here for people like you. We're not here for things like that. You don't measure up. Police officer gets on the radio and says, I'm not far away. He drives to the house and sits down and has a conversation with this little boy and radios back and lets everybody know, yeah, he really does have some very cool toys. (laughs) And they have a conversation about why 911 is there and how maybe cool toys is not the best use of the 911 system. But the response wasn't beneath my pay grade. That wasn't Jesus' response either. We need to be rescued from every dimension of sin. And all that has done to our hearts, to our relationship with the God who created us, for all that it's done to our relationships with each other, and all that it has done to ravage the world in which we live. And Jesus has said, it is not above my pay grade to step into that reality and to be born in weakness and to be constantly persecuted and questioned and doubted and threatened and murdered in order to rescue you. There's not some special group of people who say, I qualify. I'm one of the his people who gets to get rescued. You become one of his people simply by saying, Jesus, rescue me. I can't rescue myself. God speaks to us today from outside the system of human evil and weakness from outside the system of nature and he says I sent my son to save people from their sins if you are one of his people thank him for rescuing you if you are not yet one of his people then say to Jesus before this day is over, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. And he will come. And he will do as he has promised.